Exodus 17, 1 through 7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Merehab because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? The word of the Lord. So if you are new or visiting or maybe you haven't been with us in a while, let me give you a quick recap of where we are. We have been in a sermon series in the book of Exodus. Uh, Exodus is the second book in a five-book volume called the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those five books collectively are called the Pentateuch. Now, the theme of the book of Exodus is salvation. In the book of Exodus, we get the account of the big salvation event in the Old Testament. And that event actually serves as like a pattern or a paradigm through which the rest of the Bible understands salvation. Okay? Now, in terms of the story, last week we wrapped up chapter 14 where the people of Israel passed through the Red Sea. So, uh, God split the water in two so the people could walk across on dry land and then caused the water to return, drowning their Egyptian uh, pursuers. And so, they are now on the eastern side of the Red Sea, out of slavery and free. And we are not even halfway through the book. So you might be thinking, if Exodus is all about salvation, what's the rest of the book about? Well, if you remember, in biblical terms, salvation is never simply salvation from. In biblical terminology, salvation is always both salvation from and a salvation for. Okay, remember this? God saves the people of Israel out from slavery in Egypt so that what? They might instead serve the Lord, right? So the rest of the book of Exodus really focuses on that second aspect of salvation, the salvation for. How does this people have a relationship with God? Okay, now the bulk of that really happens at Mount Sinai. Uh, Mount Sinai is the place where God gives them the law. 
and where he makes his covenant with the people of Israel. A, uh, if you're unfamiliar with that word, a covenant is an ancient way of having a committed relationship. All right, It's both legally binding and very personal. So marriage is a great example of what a covenant is. All right, Legally binding, highly personal. So Mount Sinai is the place where God and the people sign the marriage certificate. Okay? But we're not there yet. All right? We are in the chapters in between the Red Sea and Mount Sinai where the people are making their way, as our verse 1 says, by stages to Mount Sinai. Okay? And they are in the wilderness. Now, if you remember, the wilderness has come up once already. And it's actually a recurring theme throughout the Pentateuch. Okay? The wilderness is the place of testing. It is the place of testing where God tests his people, where he strips away everything that they would depend on in order to find life, in order that they would have only turned to him. Okay? He strips away everything that they would look to in order to find life so that they have nothing left to turn to but God himself. And by doing that, he shapes their character so that they become a people who's fundamentally defined by faith and trust in him. Okay? That's how God tests his people. But the wilderness is also the place where the people test the Lord, where they try his patience and his love for them. And in chapter 17, the people of Israel test the Lord with a question. What's the question? Right there at the very end of verse 7. Is the Lord among us or not? Now, that's actually a really poignant question. And I would argue that that is the question of the wilderness. I feel like I keep stepping on something, and it's like, don't step there. So, I don't know. Sorry. It's a weird noise. I would argue that that is the question of the wilderness, that it's the question that the people have to grapple with throughout their time in the wilderness, okay? And it's actually the question that I would like for us to consider this morning, okay? But let me rephrase the question for our modern ears. The question of the wilderness is this, can the Lord be trusted? Can we really trust the Lord? Okay, write that down. Inscribe it in your brains. We are going to mull that over together this morning. All right? So, now, in order to really understand chapter 17, we actually have to give a quick look at what has come before it. Uh, Because chapter 17 is the last of three episodes in the wilderness. So, we actually get, in in Exodus, we get these three uh, snapshots, these three vignettes in the wilderness. And chapter 17 is like the climax Okay, so all the way back in chapter 15, they had, the people have just crossed the sea, and they walk for several days, and there's no water anywhere, and they finally get to the waters of Mara. Now, the water at Mara is bitter, undrinkable, can't drink it, so the people complain. They go to Moses and say, we're thirsty, and Moses goes to God, and God says, take this log, throw it in the water, and when Moses does that, the water becomes drinkable. Then we get to chapter 16. Chapter 16 is the manna from heaven. I'm sure many of you remember this story. The people have been walking even more time in the wilderness, and they're hungry. There's no food anywhere in sight. And so they complain, and they grumble, and they go to Moses and say, Hey, 
Back in Egypt, we had pots of meat to eat and bread, and we're starving out here in the wilderness. And you might be thinking, isn't Egypt where y'all were slaves? Why would you want to go back there? And the answer that the Pentateuch shows us over and over again is that it's always easier to get the people out of slavery than to get the slavery out of the people. But I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit there. So, All right. Moses again goes to God and, sa- and God says, I've heard the people. I'm going to feed them. I'm going to send them bread in the morning and meat in the evening. And sure enough, in the evenings, flocks of quail would descend into the camp so the people could catch them and eat them. And in the mornings, when the dew would evaporate, it left behind all this flaky white stuff. And the people went out there, they looked at it, and sure enough, they could eat it and make it into bread. And they called that manna, or mana in Hebrew, which means, what is it? Which is a great name. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, God has some very explicit instructions regarding the manna. He says, okay, in the mornings, when you go out, Collect as much of it as you want, as much as you want. But at the end of the day, if there are any leftovers, throw it out. Because I am going to give you enough food for each day. All right? And the only exception to this is on Fridays, because the next day is the Sabbath, the day of rest. And I do not want you working or collecting food on the Sabbath. So I will send you double portions on Friday. And on that day, you can save your leftovers. But the people don't listen. They do save their leftovers, and what they save goes bad, gets infected with worms. And they do try to collect the manna on the Sabbath, but there is none to be had, just as the Lord said. And then we get to chapter 17, where now the people again have gone without water, and they're no longer complaining and grumbling. They are what? Quarreling. The people quarreled with Moses. Now, in Hebrew, that word quarrel, it has a legal connotation. It means to bring a case against, to press charges. So what's the charge? Attempted murder. You brought us out here in order to kill us and our kids and our livestock. Now, that is a very serious allegation, and the people seem pretty serious about it because Moses thinks that they are going to try him, find him guilty, and execute him, okay? Now, this is the place where we need to slow down, okay, because we are modern Americans, right? We are really removed from the writing of this text, Okay, so the Pentateuch was written several thousand years ago on a different continent in a radically different culture than our own. And because of that, it's easy for us to read the Pentateuch like it's a fable or an allegory, where the question that we're asking ourselves while we read it is, what's the moral of the story for my life? What is the moral of the story? And what is the moral of the story, boys and girls? Don't complain. Don't be like those naughty Israelites. Be grateful for what God has given you, right? Well, that's all very well and good, and the Bible does have a lot to tell us about complaining. However, when we read the text that way, we are actually mishandling God's Word, and we're actually doing damage to ourselves because we're neglecting a really crucial fact. The Pentateuch is history. These were real flesh-and-blood human beings in real history, And their lives were just as complicated and nuanced as our lives are. 
And when they were living these experiences, they were not asking themselves, what's the moral of this story for my life? Right? It was just their life. So now, that doesn't mean that this is irrelevant. What that means is that in order to receive what it is the biblical writer is trying to give us, we have to do a little bit of work. And part of that work is we have to use our imaginations. Isn't that fun? We have to imagine what was it like for them. Let's put ourselves in their sandals. All right? And there's a number of things that we can consider. For one, up until this time, up until this point in their history, everything these people had known, everything they had known, everything their parents had known, everything their grandparents had known, and their great-grandparents, and their great-great-grandparents, and their great-great-great-grandparents, and their great-great-great-great-grandparents, and so on, everything they had known was slavery. They've never had to live as free people before. I doubt if any of them have ever traveled. Or even if they had traveled, it was under the direct guidance and supervision of Egyptian slave masters. So this is all radically new for them. And if you've ever been through a radically new experience, it's a little scary. Okay? On top of that, they are walking in the wilderness. And remember, this wilderness is a desert. And it's actually a really barren one. Uh, a number of years ago, I had, I had the opportunity to visit Egypt, and I got to see the desert there. And I have to tell you, from my own personal experience, lots of rocks. That's about it. So if you're into rocks, it's awesome. If you're into anything else, not so much. Okay? It is just, it looks like the moon. And if you've ever been to a desert, they tend to be really, really hot and really, really dry. Like, so if you ever go and you walk around outside for a bit, you'll notice it's like, it kind of feels like the air is trying to drink you. Like it's just <laughs> sucking the moisture out of your body. Okay? And so, and the people are walking. They're walking. They're not in an air-conditioned bus or a train or on horseback even or on camels. They are walking with their children. And all the parents said, oh, Lord Jesus. Oh. With their children and all of their stuff and their animals, cows, chickens, goats, sheep. Ugh. These people are scared and they're tired and they're hot and they're thirsty. And in every direction, everywhere they look, all they see is rocks. Now, medical professionals in the room, back me up here. The human body can go about three days without any water before we begin to die of dehydration. I, I'm going to assume that's true. I, I'm pretty sure that's true. Um, so about three days. So when the people of Israel go to Moses and they are concerned that they're going to die of thirst, they're not being melodramatic. The concern is very real. Their fear is legitimate. Because the truth is, if God does not miraculously provide them water, they will drop dead of dehydration in the desert. The stakes cannot be higher. And the question of the wilderness is, can the Lord really be trusted when our lives are on the line? Now, I doubt many of us have found ourselves dying in a desert somewhere, but there are wildernesses 
in our lives too. And the question that this test, test, text is asking us is, can the Lord really be trusted when our lives are on the line? Can the Lord really be trusted with cancer, with degenerative disease, with chronic pain or depression or anxiety? Can the Lord really be trusted with perpetual unemployment? Can the Lord really be trusted with financial ruin? Can the Lord really be trusted with relationships rupturing? When friends betray you, spouses leave you, boyfriends, girlfriends break up with you, or can the Lord really be trusted with a lifetime of singleness? Can the Lord really be trusted when our lives are on the line? Now, if you're paying attention, and you clearly are because I hear lots of scribbling, uh, and if you're a little bit clever, which let's be honest, you are all incredibly clever. Like each one of you is just more clever than the next. I could just, oh man. You're probably thinking this. All right, Mac Reese, hold up. Yes, the need for water is legitimate. That's a legitimate need. I'll give you that. However, the way the text reads, the people of Israel really don't come out looking very good. They're not presented as sympathetic characters. They're not the heroes. They're not even victims. They're, they are portrayed pretty negatively. And if you knew your Bible, Mr. Seminarian... The, throughout the rest of the Bible, this time in Israel's history is held up as Israel's example of their unfaithfulness. Like, we just confessed it earlier from Psalm 95. David says, don't be like them. Right? So there's a real problem here. Yes, I'm glad you brought that up. What's the problem? Well, we just established the problem is not the water, right? God made water, water good, you need it. Okay? Problem's not the water. Is the problem that they're afraid? No. The Bible actually presents both good and bad fear, okay? And the, the eminent possibility of death, is an, fear is an appropriate response to that, okay? The question is, what do you do with your fear, all right? So the problem is not the fear. Uh, is the problem that they go to Moses? No. Moses is God's primary mediator with the people. He's the old, he's one that speaks for God. So to go to Moses is tantamount to going to God himself, which is exactly who they're supposed to go to with their needs. So what's the problem? The problem is the accusation. The people of Israel accuse Moses of trying to kill them. He's accusing, they are accusing him of malicious intent. And to accuse Moses is really to accuse God, right? Because Moses, at this time in the people's history, he is the only mediator, right? And he didn't even elect himself. Like God kind of, against Moses' own wishes, said, you're my guy, Moses, right? And he only speaks and does what God tells him to do. And in fact, when Moses tries to reenact this event right here later on against God's wishes, he gets in big trouble with God for it. Okay, so Moses, going, accusing Moses really is accusing God. And God actually says that explicitly in the book of Numbers. To attack you, Moses, is really, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. 
So the people of Israel are accusing God of trying to kill them. Now, that seems a little bit crazy, doesn't it? Like, we kind of go, wait, I mean, didn't God rescue them out of slavery in Egypt? And not in a subtle way, right? I mean, he sent 10 supernatural plagues on Egypt. He did things like turn the river Nile into blood. And he blacked out the sun for three days. And the firstborn son of every Egyptian family died. Okay? Big miracles. Big events. And then God literally took a giant body of water and split it in two so that they could walk through it. Right? And on top of that, God's already provided them water in the wilderness. He's miraculously feeding them every single day. So why do they think God's trying to kill them? Where is that coming from? Well, the text doesn't tell us explicitly. However, something that occurs over and over and over again in the Bible is that fundamental, one of the things that is fundamentally wrong with us as human beings is that we are oriented away from our Creator. We want to live our lives autonomously from Him. And that's true of God's people, and that's true of the rest of us. So what I think is going on here is that it's, the people don't just want the water. They want the water on their own terms. They don't want to ask God for what they need. They don't want to wait on God's provision for their needs. They don't want to depend on God's timing and live in God's ways. They want to live their lives their way and on their terms. But they're in the wilderness. And the wilderness is the place where God strips away everything that his people would use to have life apart from him so that they have nothing left to turn to but God himself. And when he does that, it exposes their hard hearts and they get angry. So angry that they begin to attack the very character of God himself. Now, I have to ask us a question. Are you angry this morning? Are you angry at God? Now, let me be clear. This does not apply to everyone in the room. Some of you are exploring Christianity. You are, would not consider yourself a Christian yet, and we're, we're so glad you're here. Okay, so metaphorically speaking, you're still in Egypt, and you're kind of looking across the sea at the goings-on. Okay? So I'm not primarily talking to you. I, I would invite you to listen, though, and consider. I'm talking to people that have crossed over. That would, you would consider yourself a Christian. Are you angry? And some of you aren't. God has already stripped a lot of things away from your life. And you haven't handled it perfectly. And it hurt. But you can say with honesty, you know, if I have Jesus and nothing else, I have lost nothing. And if that's you, hallelujah. And I'm not being funny. Hallelujah, because we don't show up that way. That is not the natural inclination of our hearts. That is evidence of God's work in your life. But let's not jump to that right away. T 
take a minute this morning and really consider in your heart, am I angry? Are you angry at God? Because, you know, sometimes life doesn't go the way we script it. And, we, and, and here's a really good diagnostic. Do you find a low-level grumble in your life? Kind of a subtext of resentment? A disposition of complaint? Where you kind of look around at the people around you and go, you know, it's just not fair. It's not fair that, that her or him or those people, that they look so beautiful and they are so thin and healthy and they don't even have to work at it. And my body hurts all the time. And I don't look the way I want to look. And I have to take all this medication just to function. It's not fair. It's not fair that all of these people around me have found their calling. They found the career or the job that really, like, they flourish in and they enjoy, and I hate my job. And I struggle to make ends meet. It's not fair. It's not fair that everybody else has found their special someone, and I'm still alone. It's not fair that everybody else married a spouse who really takes care of them, and mine sucks. It's not fair. Now, are any of those things bad things? Health, job, money, relationships. No, God made those things. Those are good things, and it is not wrong to want them. But are you angry at God because he's taken them away? He's withheld them from you. Let me tell you this. That grumble, it becomes an accusation. If you feed it, it becomes an accusation where you begin to say, you know, I'm not really sure God actually cares about me all that much. Because if he did, if he really cared about me, if he really loved me, I wouldn't feel this way. My life wouldn't look like this. Maybe you're the person here and you're so angry at God, you have begun to question if he even exists. But here's the thing. Have you considered the possibility that maybe God has not stripped things away from your life because he doesn't love you, but because he does? Because he actually wants you to have real life. All of those things, they're not bad, but they don't contain life. They're conduits. They're they are means by which God gives us life, but they do not contain life in and of themselves. And if you try to suck life out of the conduit, you will not get it. There is only one true source of life, and it is God himself. And when I say God, I do not mean in the abstract sense. I do not mean spirituality or some sort of concept of a divine being out there. I mean the Lord, Yahweh. I am who I am. The only one in the entire universe whose existence is not dependent on anything external to himself. The Lord is life within himself. And so therefore he is the only source of life. And you will not have it unless you go to him.
Can the Lord really be trusted when our lives are on the line? Yes, because He is the only true source of our lives. But sometimes we have been looking to other things for life, and the Lord will strip them away because He loves us. What does God do? What's He going to do? Here are His people. His special people, and they're supposed to be a light to the nations. They are supposed to live in faith and trust in Him, and that is supposed to show the, the rest of the people on earth. This is what humanity was made to live for. And they don't trust Him. And they're so angry at Him that they're accusing Him and attacking His character. And they want to take Moses to court, execute Him, and legally emancipate themselves from service to the Lord. What does He do? Well, he doesn't strike them dead. He could have. Nor does he ignore it. Surprise, God accepts their litigation. He says, you want to go to court? All right, let's go to court. Do you see there where it says, pass before the people? That is basically an ancient Hebrew way of saying the court is now in session. And then he tells Moses to gather some things. He says, gather the elders. Who do the elders represent? Well, they represent the people. That's their job. Okay? And he, el he also tells Moses to grab the staff. What does the staff represent? The staff is a representation of God's power and authority. Right? It's, through, it's the, one of the primary ways in which God sent the ten plagues. He told Moses to do a lot of things with the staff. It represents God's power and authority. So, everybody has their legal representation. The people have their elders. Moses has, or God has Moses and the staff. They go to court. And God is not only on the docket, he is also, because of who he is, is also the supreme judge. And he stands on the rock. And he renders the verdict. To, he tells Moses to strike. Now, that word, that's a really interesting word, strike. In Hebrew, that word shows up a number of times in the Pentateuch, and we've actually seen it already. Do you guys remember back in chapter 2 where Moses saw the Egyptian abusing another Israelite, and he reacts out of righteous indignation, and he kills the guy? It, it says he struck the Egyptian. Right here in verse 5 where he says, take the staff which you struck the Nile. What happened when Moses struck the Nile? It turned to blood. In chapter 12, when God sends the destroyer and the firstborn son of every Egyptian family dies, God says, I will strike Egypt. In Hebrew, to strike is not a slap on the cheek. It is a strike of judgment. It's a killing blow. It's the executioner's axe. And God renders the verdict, strike. But not the people. And not Moses. But the rock. The rock which God himself is standing on. And when Moses does that, outbursts life-giving water. I think some of you see where this is going. What would that have communicated to the people? What would that have communicated? Well, 
that would have been a profound statement of God's willingness to put up with them, to be patient with them, that his willingness to accept their unjust and unfounded accusations and to take the penalty, which really they deserve, and in exchange to give them the very thing that they need. But we have something so much better. Because a few thousand years later, God sent another mediator. He sent another one to represent him and to go between God and the people. And that mediator would lead God's people into salvation. But just like Moses, this mediator was misunderstood. The people didn't really understand what he was about, and they misread his intentions, and they unjustly took him to court. But unlike Moses, the Lord Jesus was not only unjustly tried, he was unjustly condemned. And on the cross, the life of the Lord Jesus was struck down in judgment and outburst life-giving water. Are you thirsty this morning? Is your soul thirsty? Do you long for health, significance, meaning, belonging, connection, security? Are, is your soul thirsty for life? Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let them come to me and I will let them drink of the waters of eternal life. Is it health you really want? If your faith is in the Lord Jesus, there's a day coming when your body will be resurrected from death, and you will be given a new body that will never again taste death or sickness or pain. You don't get much healthier than eternal life. Is the thing that you long for to feel significant like your life matters. If you are in Christ, you are an ambassador to King Jesus and his kingdom. And he has a role for you that only you can fill. Do you, want, do you long for that sense of belonging? That sense of connection? If you are in Christ, you have been adopted into God's family with brothers and sisters from every tribe and nation and tongue throughout human history. That is an amazing family tree. Is the thing that you really long for security? I'm convinced that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You're secure. Can the Lord really be trusted when our lives are on the line? Yes, because the, He is the only true source of life, but sometimes we have been seeking life from other things. So the life of the Lord Jesus was struck down in judgment so that we could have life and life eternal. Would you come to Him this morning? Let me pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, you are better. You are better than financial success, than relational harmony. You're better than health. You are better than any job or any amount of money or anything we could own or any life in this present order that we could carve out for ourselves. You're better. 
and you offer yourself to us freely. And I ask for those that have yet to drink that they would taste for the first time and that they would see that you really are as good as you say you are. And for my brothers and sisters who have forgotten that, again, you would allow them to drink deeply this morning and to remember that you are the only true source of life. Thank you for your love and your patience with us. Thank you for who you are. And it's in your name that I pray. Amen.